Dear softball, I fell in love with you when I was a little girl, always carrying around my glove, throwing tennis balls off the wall, and hitting with my dad in the park. I played with the boys when there was no softball, and then finally switched over once recruiting started, and that's when it started to get serious. I hungered for competition and strived for excellence, but for a while, you were something that my hands had such a tight grip on. My identity was tied so tightly to a game that leads to failure almost all of the time, and I rode the roller coaster of emotions. Then I met Jesus. I learned I have a loving father who died for my sins and has a plan for my life, a plan to give me a hope and a future. My perspective changed when I realized you were just something I did, not who I was. Jesus tells me who I am, and I wanted to bring this light into the softball world and play the game differently. I was so blessed to have the opportunity to attend the best university in the country and play for the best program imaginable. Yes, winning a few national championships and winning some personal honors is amazing, and I will never take that for granted. But it is so much greater than what goes on on that dirt. First, I have met some of my best friends and my future husband at OU. Praise the Lord. But even more so, the Lord has given me a platform to shine a light that the world tries to dim. The expectation is to idolize you, and the promise is that true joy comes from reaching a goal that you have put all of your effort into. Yes, we as Christians are expected to work hard at all that we do for Christ, but the real victory has already been won on the cross, Jesus dying for my sin and saving me. Because of this, I have an eternal hope that allows me to play your game free with fullness of joy that comes only from the Lord. With this mindset, I have played the most joyful softball the last five years. What's crazy is that this joy doesn't come after big wins, home runs, championships, etc., because all of those things will fade away. I am filled with a steadfast joy when I see one of my teammates decide to get baptized and become a sister in Christ. I will never forget worshiping with my teammates, singing the song Nobody in center field after winning the second national championship. God is so awesome. My prayer when I started college was that I could be a vessel that the Lord uses in his kingdom to bring others to know him. As I leave college softball, I pray that others can know how loved they are by the creator of the world and that Jesus can use you in mighty ways. You just need to be willing and obedient. I'll end with one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sincerely, Grace Lyons. Well, good morning. I'm going to be honest, there's a part of me that is burdened by showing that this morning because it is Oklahoma. But there's another part of me that will now admit that I have a new favorite softball team, and it is not Texas. It's Oklahoma because of that right there. That I, I show that because um, two weeks ago, we ended our series on Ecclesiastes. And I felt like that video right there just... Uh, kind of wrapped it all up. It's two weeks late, but it wrapped up how she was just saying, like, I sought for it in softball. It didn't bring me joy. It brought failure after failure. It's a game of failure, and it will bring you down over and over. And she said, the only thing that brought me joy is Jesus Christ. And then that's just like their captain that said that. And then after they won the national, or actually before they won the national championship, they asked a handful of the Oklahoma Sooner softball players about how do you just stay so positive? And uh, they, they won 51 games in a row 
And it's like, how do you stay so positive with everything that weighs on you during that? And they were like, because we don't care if we lose because it's a game. What we care about is representing Jesus. And it's not just one person. It is the team that had that. So boomer sooner. Yeah. Um, Praise Jesus for that. That's all I have to say. Because also I want to point out real quick, last thing I'll say on that. I don't know if you noticed in the upper left-hand corner there was a logo. And that wasn't some Christian website, some Christian um, broadcasting that did that. That was the NCAA. Like that was a secular organization that put that on. And ESPN uh, revealed that. And it's just like, man, she just broadcast that to a secular world about, hey, your hope is only found in Jesus. And I I love that. I just wanted to share that with you. And I hope that you're encouraged by it as well. So we're going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we will get into our message this morning. So I'm just going to ask you, uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is with us wherever we go. Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But as you read through the book of Acts, you realize also there are times that he gives his spirit to people that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just going to ask if you'll join me, that that be our prayer this morning, that we know God is here, but that we open our hearts to welcome him here, and that he actually manifests his spirit to us today as we read his word. So if you'll just join me as we open up and ask that, God, I do, I pray that you just give your spirit to us. God, I pray that your spirit overcome my body and my mouth to speak your truth. And I pray that your spirit enter our hearts, that we open them to hear what you have to say. So that we can have the attitude of grace, lions, that whatever this world comes at us, God, Jesus is on the throne and he is where our joy comes from. And God, that's a message that needs to be heard as this world tries to pull us away. And even as right now, there's so many distractions of, are we going to be able to get the the wheat cut? Are we going to be able to get the crop taken care of? Are we going to be able to get lunch out of the oven before it burns, if he'll be done preaching soon? Um, God, there's so many things that are going to try and take our mind from this moment. And I just ask, let us hear from you. Calm our hearts, calm our minds so that we can hear who you are and that you be glorified in this time and we be transformed for you. God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So have you ever been asked by God to do something that you're just super uncomfortable with? I mean, it's kind of what God's specialty is, I feel. As C.S. Lewis, I've quoted it a couple times. He says, if you want a religion that makes you feel comfortable, don't choose Christianity. Because God is going to call you into uncomfortable situations. And that's really what I realize the Old Testament is about. God taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things through them. That you go through Hebrews chapter 11 and you have the hall of faith and you see that God called Abraham and told him to go to a land that he didn't know about. And who's Abraham? Some 75-year-old fatherless, or not fatherless, childless guy who God is telling him, you're going to be the father of many nations. And then Abraham goes. That God will call us to do really uncomfortable things in our lives and that what we are called to do is be obedient. To step out in faith towards what God is calling us to do. 
Because I, I kind of see that in my life, that if you would have asked me right in college, Andy, what do you want to do? I would have told you, I want to stay in my pajamas all day and teach kids how to throw balls at each other. I want to be a PE teacher. That's pretty much life for me. Like that is living the dream. Get to go, not really talk to people, tell these kindergartners, this is how you dodge a ball, don't get hit, now go at it. I would have made a terrible PE teacher as I think about it now. Like they say, those who can't do teach and those who can't teach, teach PE. Apparently I, I fit that mantra. But it's, it's like, here we are, that like, that's what I wanted to do. And I remember specifically telling God whenever I'm in speech class and need him to prepare these speeches, why do I have to do this, God? I'm never going to talk to people like kindergartners. I need basic syllables to be able to speak to them. I'm not going to use this. Never if you would have said, yeah, but someday you might have to stand in front of people weekly and pre present a message, somehow do it eloquently. That's what God's going to call you to do. I'd have been like, no way. Show me the exit door and look at where we're at today. Because that's God calling me out of some major comfort zones to do something, honestly, I am not comfortable with. I am an extreme introvert, I'm realizing. If I know you, I love you. If I don't know you, I'll be holding up the wall. Because I, I, it's just not my comfort level to be doing this. So why do I open up with that? Because again, that is the Old Testament, that God is calling people out of their comfort level to go and be obedient to him. And that's what we see in today's passage. As we are introduced to this character who I identify with so much, that God calls him in Exodus chapter 3 through the burning bush, and he speaks to Moses, and he says, I'm calling you to lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. There's about a million plus of them, and you're going to take them from the most powerful nation at this moment. And I'm going to use you to lead them out. And Moses' response is, uh, who? You're, who am I? I'm a nobody. And then God's like, well, I'm going to go with you. And then he starts making excuses that I can relate to. It's kind of like when God calls you, hey, I want you to go. And you're like, um, God, I don't know what I'm going to say. And God's like, I'll tell you what to say. Well, God, I don't know where I'm going to go. I'll show you where to go. Well, God, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And he's like, I will be with you. That God calls Moses and he has excuse after excuse. And finally, he's just like, a, a God, I can't even talk well. I'm not, I'm not eloquent of speech. And God says, I'll give you the words to say and I'll send Aaron to speak for you. And, and finally, Moses is like, uh, how about no? Can you please just send somebody else? And God was angry with Moses. But we see that Moses is being called by God at that time. And that's where we're moving into our passage today as we're going through this series, Jesus in the Old Testament. Because again, remember last week we talked about the Old Testament seems like that flyover passages of the Bible where it's like, can I just get to the New Testament stuff? Like I'll read Genesis and Exodus is packed full of information and action and plagues. And it's really a fun read. But then you get to Leviticus in Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the second half of Judges, and pretty much the rest of the prophets, and it's just like, how about we skip that part? And it's like, you're missing so much of what God has to tell us about his redeeming story, and his love for his people. 
And so we're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you, we're going to kind of hone in at the end of this on Exodus chapter 12, but we're going to start out by looking at the overview of Exodus. And if you were here last week, I mean, it's like drinking through a fire hydrant. We are just going to give you information. And so that's why there's the little fill in the blank. If you are a note taker, that's for you so that you can follow along and maybe have an understanding when you're reading Exodus of this is the context, this is what's going on, this is why it's happening. So last week, real quick review, we covered Genesis. It lasted from creation all the way to this guy named Joseph who was sold into slavery. It went through Abraham who God made a covenant with him and said, I'm choosing you to be the father of all the nations. So I'm going to use you. He had no children at that time. He was 75 years old. He had to wait 25 years for the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Talk about waiting and waiting. He had to wait 25 years. And then finally, he gives birth, his wife, Sarah, gives birth to their son, Isaac, who is the heir of the covenant, and it works through Isaac. Isaac meets Rebecca. Rebecca has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, God loved. Esau, God hated. So he chose Jacob to be the recipient. Jacob has 12 sons who we come to know as the 12 tribes of Israel. One of their name is Joseph, the second youngest who the brothers despised because God chose to work through him. And so the brothers sell him into slavery. And he works his way to Egypt. At 17 years old, he goes to Egypt. He spends 11 years in Potiphar's house, who is like the captain of the guard. He's 11 years in his house. He's accused of raping Potiphar's wife. So he's thrown in prison for two years. And there he reveals the dream of a cupbearer and a, uh, uh, the other guy who I can't think of right now. Baker, thank you. My wife is the theologian in our family. So I have to study to be smart. She's just smart. But anyways, the cupbearer and the baker, he interprets their dreams. And then, sorry, I just got sidetracked. Did you say that? <laughs> the baker? Oh, okay. Given credit, where credit's due. So, sorry. Back on track. Um, I'm running on caffeine this morning. Uh, and the Holy Spirit. Anyways, we're going to focus. God works through Joseph so that suddenly he becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And then there's a famine that comes. So now Joseph's family moves to Egypt and they live there and they grow and they multiply so much so that in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, it says the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. And then it says, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So we have from Joseph who died around 1805 BC. And now we're picking it up sometime later where there is this new king who does not know Joseph. So if you are a note taker, get those pins ready because here is your overview of the book of of Exodus. The name of Exodus is Exodus. It's the Greek word, which means to exit, to depart, or to go out. It, was, it, it occurs around 1446 BC. 
So we're about 400 years after Joseph. How do we know that? Like, again, I geek out on all of this stuff. The way that we know that date is because of 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. So we know Solomon for sure reigned from 970 to 930 B.C. That tells us this was the fourth year, so it's 966 B.C., and it says it was the 480th year after they left Egypt. So 966 plus 480, you get 1446. The first chapter spans 320 years, approximately. Chapter 2 spans 40 years. Chapters 3 through chapter 40 spans one year and some change. The author, just like Genesis, is Moses. The audience is the Israelites as they are wandering through the wilderness. You have some main characters at play in the book of Exodus. You have, obviously, God. He's going to be a main character in all of these. You have Moses, you have his brother Aaron, you have Pharaoh, and you have the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, at the end of Genesis, the family of Jacob that came into Egypt was about 70 people. And then in Exodus 1, it told us that they were fruitful and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. So far that by the time we get to Exodus, we are at over a million men alone. So way more than that in people. Some estimates say two to three million people are the nation of Israel now. The main events, you have the birth of Moses and the violence that comes around that. Pharaoh trying to kill all the sons of the Hebrew women under the age of two. You have the calling of Moses after he has tended sheep for 40 years. You have 10 plagues. You have the Passover, which is the 10th plague. You have the Exodus, the, where it gets its name, where they go out of Egypt and they start their journey to the promised land. And that includes crossing through the Red Sea. Pretty cool story. You have grumbling of the Israelites. Three days, they leave, Exodus, they leave Egypt. Three days later, they're without water and they start to grumble and complain and say, oh, that we were in Egypt, the steaks and the T-bones and all the delicious food that we had in Egypt, the air-conditioned lofts, everything. It was so good in Egypt. Three days later, God delivered them out of Egypt. Three days later, they're already turning on God and they are grumbling and complaining. They go to Mount Sinai and God provides for them. He provides for them by giving them water out of a rock on multiple occasions. He provides for them by raining down manna from heaven and giving them just enough to survive for that day. And then he provides again and again and he is faithful. He provides the law to them. He tells them, this is how as my people you are going to live. It consisted of roughly 600 laws, but we know 10 of them for sure. It has the 10 commandments. He gives the tabernacle, which is this tent that can be packed up and moved easily. And then whenever they come to their next location, they set it up and God dwells among his people. That is going to be a theme again throughout the Old Testament. God's desire to be with his people. You have the locations, it's kind of two. You have Egypt, 
the first 12 chapters, and then they exit, and they end up working their way to Mount Sinai. There's only one covenant in the book of Exodus. It's the Mosaic covenant. This is given in Exodus chapter 19, and it is conditional. Notice the condition that this covenant is carried out. He says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now you'll remember, Genesis had two covenants, one main one. We had the Noahic covenant, which was the rainbow in the sky and God saying, never again will I wipe out the earth with a flood. And then you had the Abrahamic covenant where God tells Abraham through you is going to be a blessing of many nations. And it was a covenant of faith and a covenant of just being chosen as God's people. And a lot of people think, okay, when the, when the Mosaic covenant came in, did it undo the Abrahamic covenant? But instead, the two of them run alongside each other. You have the Abraham covenant, which says, these are who my people are going to be. And then you have the, uh, the Mosaic covenant, which says, this is how my people are called to live. He says, this is how you are to act. They came alongside Paul. He says this in Galatians chapter three. He says, this is what I mean. The law, it came 430 years after Abraham's covenant. But it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You see this new covenant showed the people of God, the descendants of Abraham. It showed them how to live their lives. But it also showed you can never be saved by your own doing. Because so many people thought, well, I'll just keep the law and I'll save myself. And it showed us that's not possible. If you ever think you can be morally good enough to be saved, the law shows you you cannot. Um, Paul goes on to say that I didn't know what coveting was until the law came in and showed me what coveting was. And then the moment I knew about coveting, my heart wanted to covet. It's like when you're walking along a wall and it says, fresh paint, do not touch. And it's like, I have never had the urge to touch a wall before in my life until now. And I want to write my name in it. It's like I didn't know about touching the wall until you told me, don't touch the wall. And now all I want to do is touch the wall because we are a rebellious people. As Stephen said, the, the moment that he was about to be stoned, he looks at the Pharisees and all the religious people and he says, you stiff-necked people. And it's like, yep, I can relate to that, Stephen, because God tells me don't do this. And I want to be like, well, actually, God. And so what the law does is it shows us 
We cannot keep God's perfect moral standard because so many people are even like, you know what? I just wish God would like write on the wall what he wants me to do. Read Exodus, read Leviticus, and you'll see what God wants you to do. And it will prove right away, even if God were to write down for you verbatim, this is how to live your life. You cannot do it. Even the law paints the picture for our need of somebody to save us outside of ourself. Who then will deliver me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to Jesus. So the law shows us that we need a savior, that nobody in this world can save us. So the, the second covenant, the Mosaic covenant, comes alongside the Abrahamic covenant and shows us this is God's standard. This is how you should live. Then we have the main theme of the book of Exodus, and it is redemption. It is revealed that only redemption is possible through death. We saw that right away in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve tried to make for themselves garments of, of, of plant leaves. And then God came and made garments of skin right away. The only way to cover our sin is for death to occur. The only way for redemption to happen is for death to occur. What we see also is when you read through Exodus, you see Egypt representing the world. And you see Israel's bondage to Egypt representing mankind's bondage to sin and death. You see that when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. He says you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is the bondage that we had represented, represented in bondage to the Egyptians. The Israelite journey can be compared, and this is in your notes, I'm not gonna go through it, but it is compared to the Christian journey, going from bondage to freedom, struggling with wanting to go back to the old way of life, and like I said, it's in there, I won't go through it much more, but read over that, because it's, it's revealing. You have the outline of the book. The first 18 chapters, you see the redemption of Israel. This is from external bondage, of trying to get Israel out of Egypt. They were physically in bondage and they were trying to get out of Egypt. This is written primarily in narrative form. It tells a story, it's an easy read. Then the next 21 chapters, chapter 19 through 40, is the revelation from God. God giving the Israelites his revelation for this is how you are to live. This is going from internal bondage of trying to get the way of the Egyptians out of Israel. So God delivers us from death physically. We do not, as believers, experience the second death. Revelation tells us that. But then we have the internal deliverance, and we call that sanctification, of 
the Holy Spirit working inside of us as we become more like Christ and less like the world. The things that I used to do, I hate now. I don't want to do them. I still struggle with them, but I don't want to do them. Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. We are being sanctified through Christ. We are being delivered from that. The second half of the book is written more legislatively. It's like the, the constitution of the Israelites. This is how you're going to live. We are going to tell you legislatively how to live your life for Christ. And this is where God gives the Israelites his moral, his civil, and his ceremonial law. How you are to live as children of God, how you are to live as the nation of God, and then how you are to live in worship to God. His moral his civil, and his ceremonial law. And then God also gives precisely, because he is a God of order, how to build the tabernacle, how to build the place where he is going to come and worship or be worshiped by them. So in Abraham, or not Abraham, in Genesis, we saw a lot of messianic prophecies. There are zero prophecies about Jesus in the book of Exodus. There are a ton of typologies about Jesus. Remember, a typology is an act, it is a law, or it is a person who points to Jesus coming. We saw that in like Adam, we saw that in Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. That is a typology of the sacrifice that Jesus was gonna pay. So remember, it is said, and we mentioned it last week, that the Old Testament whispers of Jesus. What we're going to see is that the Old Testament here in Exodus screams of Jesus. So we have some typologies of Jesus in the Old Testament. First off, we have Moses. It's said about Moses, even in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, already talking about Jesus. I guess you might be able to say that is a messianic prophecy, but it is a typology of Jesus. Look at the way they're similar. Both served as prophets, kings, and priests. Even though Moses was never really a king, he fulfilled that role among them. Both were kinsmen redeemers. Both were endangered as infants. You see the birth story of Moses and Pharaoh trying to kill every Hebrew child under the age of two. And it runs almost parallel to the birth of Jesus and Herod trying to kill every Hebrew child under the age of two. You see, both voluntarily renounced their power and their wealth. Pharaoh, or Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's household and then he left, well, he ran away because he was scared to shepherd among the sheep. Jesus sat in heaven with God. And Philippians tells us that he humbled himself by taking on human form. Both were deliverers, both were lawgivers, and both are our mediators to God. Moses was the mediator between the Israelites and God. Jesus is our mediator between God and us. There are seven feasts that are mentioned in the book of Exodus. And those in some way or another talk about the ministry of Jesus. Leviticus goes into a lot more detail on those. You have the actual act of the Exodus. Again, we talked about that external bondage 
being set free, coming out of slavery to death. You have the manna in the water in which both are applied to Christ. John chapter 6 talks about our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And then Jesus says, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And then jumping down to verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So that's just a couple of the typologies of Jesus, but there's two that we are going to wrap up this service with. The first one is Exodus 12. And it is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That Jesus is the Passover lamb. You have this where the Israelites are in bondage. And Moses has been coming to Pharaoh. And he has been saying, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And over and over, Pharaoh says, okay, they can go. And then he hardens his heart and says, no, they cannot go. They have to stay here. And then there's plague after plague, and I mean, it's exciting if they could do it right. Like, I know we've, if you're older, you've probably seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Not a bad movie. It could be done so much better. Where there's just this battle going on between the creator of the world and Pharaoh, who thinks he is a god. And over and over, God keeps doing this plague, and... uh, If you read through it later, there's this one thing that I want to point out real quick. The first plague, God turns the water to blood. And it says that the Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing. I think the second plague is frogs were all over the place. And it says the Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing. And then eventually you get to the gnats and it says the Egyptian magicians could not do that. And then you get to the boils. And it says the Egyptian magicians could not even stand because of the sores on them. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff if you ask me to see God just like I'm going to crush you one by one. And I mean, it's like that's kind of sadistic, but he's God. And they were taking his people. So it's not sadistic at all because God is going to be, he says over and over, it is so that I will be glorified. He is going to get the glory. So much so that he keeps doing this plagues, and then finally, nothing is doing it. So then God tells Pharaoh, this time tomorrow, your firstborn is going to be dead. And anybody who is not covered by the blood, it says this in Exodus chapter 12, tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt at night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Remember, the Old Testament whispers of Jesus, but this screams Jesus. 
So much so that Jesus tells us he is the Passover lamb. You see, the Passover is the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament, where God took three million plus people and brought them out of the greatest nation on earth at that time. And he crumbled that nation so much so that God says they're going to pay you to leave. You're actually going to become way more wealthy than they are. You're going to pillage them without even raising a sword. That is the greatest act of redemption. Through the blood of Jesus, we have the greatest act of redemption in the history of the world. Where God delivered countless souls from death from slavery and bondage to sin, and he brought us into a new life. Not even that. We were dead, and he says, now you have been made alive. You see, God leads the Christians out of sinful bondage through the blood of Christ, so much so that Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, cleanse out the old leaven, the old way of living, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And then he says in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We've already said it. Ephesians tells us you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were slaves to spiritual Egypt. But then again, my favorite words. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God sent the Passover lamb, his son, to be the blood that cleanses us so that we could be delivered from bondage, so that we could be with God. Revelation tells us, That as John is in the heaven, he's having his vision and he's standing there and they're about to open the fifth scroll and nobody is worthy to open it. And so he begins to weep and an elder comes to him and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it were slain with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they all fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And notice this part. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Jesus is the Passover lamb. 
John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the second thing that we just see Jesus in the book of Exodus is because he is the Passover lamb, we get to enter into a new tabernacle. The old tabernacle, God told Moses, this is how you build it. This is the the dimensions. This is where you're going to put the altar, the basin, the sacrificial offering place. This is where I want everything because this is how the people will be able to come to me. But not everybody can come. They need a mediator to be able to come into my presence. But God says in Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Why does God require this to be built? Because he wants to be with you. He longs to be with his people. And sin has separated us from him, so much so that the law shows us there is no amount of good we can do to be made right with God. Adam walked with God, and then they sinned, and from that moment on, There's been this separation of us trying to get back to God, but it's not perfect. We've been unable to do it. But because of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the Israelites, they were able to exit bondage and enter into relationship with God. Because of the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, we are able to exit our bondage and enter into relationship with God. But notice this one point. What was the requirement for the angel of death to pass over the household? Was it that the person inside observed every single Sabbath? Was it that the person inside gave 10%, did enough good? There was one requirement that they had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. It did not matter who was in the house. It mattered whose blood was on the house. It does not matter who you are. It matters whose blood covers your life. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Jesus' blood comes to make you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. You're, you're like the worst person you can think of giving their life to Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. They are a new creation. But again, there's this problem with the old tabernacle. We could not enter directly into relationship with God. We needed a priest. Thanks to Jesus, the Passover lamb, who is that priest that we are told in Hebrews that he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That's Ephesians. In Matthew, we see that the veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was torn from top to bottom. So that we can now enter into direct relationship with God because of who God is and what Jesus did for us. When we were dead, he made us alive. By grace, you have been saved so that we can now dwell with God. Hebrews says this, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. 
He says the first covenant had its regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Only the high priest could go there. These preparations having thus been made, the priest would go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and but once a year, and without ta- not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintended sins of the people. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of revelation. But, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For Christ, verse 24, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he entered, the, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, because Jesus is the Passover lamb, we can go directly to God with confidence and know that he hears us. Ephesians 2.22, he says, we are the place of God. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the Israelites lived in the old covenant. Jesus came to usher in the new covenant, which Paul says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he broke it, he gave, or when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the cup that we drink. It reminds us we're not under the old covenant. We are in the new covenant that has been ushered in through the blood of Jesus so that we can be right with God, not based on our keeping the law, because that can never happen, but based on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, that because of that, we can with confidence approach the throne of grace. You see, the the cup that we drink, 
reminds us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, and he ushers in the new covenant, which by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, so that no one may boast. It's not a result of works. It is the gift of God, so that, as Paul says, now with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace. We can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hopefully you guys have already gone and got the bread and the juice because we're gonna close out this sermon by remembering that sacrifice, by As Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he took it and he said, this is my blood, which is the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Kurt and the group is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. And it's called Lamb of God. And and if you want to sing... I encourage you, sing it. If you want to just sit there and reflect on what it is that Jesus has done for you as you hold that little cracker and you think of the excruciating anguish that Jesus went through to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then you hold that juice and you think of the blood that Jesus shed for you to usher in a new covenant that is not based on what we do. It's solely based on the blood that Jesus sacrificed for us and are being covered by that blood. How are you covered by the blood? Paul tells us, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, he says, you will be saved. That is how you become washed by the blood. So as as we sing this song, they're going to sing it. You can sit back and listen and reflect. You can sing along. But at your time, when you are prepared, after you've prayed and reflected on what Christ has done, I encourage you, take the bread, take the juice, and remember the sacrifice that Christ has done for you.